Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is Leah Kaufman. And I'm John Murphy. Before we begin, I'd like to invite our listeners to tell us more about their interests. So that we can bring you the interviews and information you'd like to hear, we hope you take a few minutes to complete this listener survey on our website at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. All survey respondents will be entered into a drawing for a McGowan Institute Felice Vest. And now on to today's podcast. Leah, can you tell us about our guest? Dr. Doros Platica is president and CEO of the Pittsburgh Life Sciences Greenhouse, an organization dedicated to helping the region grow expertise in businesses in several biotech fields, including regenerative medicine. While Dr. Platica will tell us about the greenhouse's mission and accomplishments, he's also got exciting news about the next phase of his career. At the end of November 2006, Dr. Platica will end his tenure at the greenhouse to become chairman of the new Super Centenarian Research Foundation. Thanks, Leah, and let's hear from Dr. Platica now. We're joined today by Dr. Doros Platica, who is currently leading the Pittsburgh Life Sciences Greenhouse. Which is, uh, is that an unusual group compared to other cities in the country with large research centers? Uh, yes, um, it's, and it's unusual even compared to the other two greenhouses that exist in the state. Okay. Uh, the state of Pennsylvania has been quite visionary in taking some of its tobacco settlement money and using it to promote life science companies and life science industries. So uh, approximately four or five years ago, the state took $100 million, split it three ways, and created three greenhouses, one in Philadelphia, one in Harrisburg, one in Pittsburgh. What makes the Pittsburgh one unusual is that while the one in Harrisburg and one in Philadelphia focused on investing in very early stage opportunities, the vision of the state was to allow each greenhouse to meet the needs of its region and the Pittsburgh greenhouse realized that the Pittsburgh region needed to address a number of key elements for success of which early stage investment was just one. So we also set up uh, an incubator space. Um, we also do early stage investments and help companies get uh, small business innovation grants, SBIRs, and now count for 75% of all the SBIRs coming into the region. Um, but we also address some of the other even more important elements of success, and that's human capital, whether it's um, workforce training. And with the Department of Labor, we attracted $2.5 to train 400 individuals. We've already trained in half the time uh, a thousand or 900 individuals and in the second year of the program we're going to be training yet another thousand uh, individuals and even more important and has been an area that people have criticized Pittsburgh and that is a paucity of serial entrepreneurs with domain-specific expertise people who've been there done that um, so we've created an executive in residence program an executive associate program to help mentor uh, company. So whenever any company wants to work with a greenhouse or apply for investment, um, they get assigned an executive in residence that can mentor them, that can open doors to corporate alliances, that can open doors to financing, and that hopefully they can learn from and, and avoid some of the mistakes that these entrepreneurs have already made and survived. So I see this as um, a, a growth space for 
businesses that are based on the many sort of technologies and discover the intellectual sort of richness that comes out of this area here in southwestern Pennsylvania. Is that right? You're, you're absolutely correct. One of the both opportunities and challenges for Pittsburgh is that just the University of Pittsburgh attracts close to $600 million in NIH money. Um, and between the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon, we're actually probably having over $800 million in research funds. Um, the, our region by itself, if it would be a separate state, it would be number 17 in, in the country in financing. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania actually attracts as much NIH money as the Bay Area of California. Mm. Yet the Bay Area attracts about, so we each attract about 15% of NIH money. The Bay Area attracts about 17% of commercialization investment money. The whole Commonwealth attracts about 2% of investment money, most of which goes to the Philadelphia region. For, for the sustainable areas, usually for every $2 of NIH money, you should attract about a dollar of commercialization money. In Pittsburgh, for each $2 of NIH money, we attract about 10 cents. So we attract about one-tenth of the commercialization. I prefer to look at that as an opportunity rather than a challenge. That means we're not very picked over. One of the biggest complaints in capital markets is that there's too much money chasing too few good opportunities. If you want good opportunities, come to Pittsburgh. So there's been a disconnect, to reiterate, between the investment in basic science research and its transformation into um, marketable Correct. products. Where are those, in the past, have good basic science discoveries been transformed into marketable products? marketable products in somebody else's market? Or are they just not being transformed at all into? Um, they have been transformed to some degree in, in other markets. Uh, we know especially in IT. Pittsburgh. That's yeah. right. Critical uh, uh, therapeutics also went to mm -hmm. Boston. Um, but actually for nearly over two decades, the new company startup rate in life sciences has remained relatively steady for Pittsburgh, about two a year, mm -hmm. one to two. In the last three years, that rate, uh, according to a third-party study, has increased to 28 per year. Mm -hmm. We now work with over 150 companies, so now there is a critical mass, and something has changed. But for the longest time, I think there was also a different mindset. People uh, wouldn't necessarily think about patenting before they published. So then that technology would be in the public domain and no longer available uh, to be commercialized. I think uh, numerous efforts, not just the greenhouse, uh, the innovation works, or also um, uh, the McGowan Institute of Regenerative Medicine, PTEI, uh, as well as uh, university or UPMC initiatives uh, like the Enterprise Center, has helped educate people to be aware that, hey, Think about your technology. Is this something that could help people? I think the best thing, and maybe I'm being a bit naive here, I, I think it's the best field to be in is in entrepreneurship in the life sciences. Because like many other fields, you can create jobs, you can create wealth. 
But unlike other fields, by its very definition, if the products are successful, they improve the quality of life globally and they can save lives. Now, to me, that's truly a win-win-win opportunity. And if people are aware of it, they're happy to do it. If they're not aware of it, they just rush out, do a presentation, do a publication, and now it's too late to be able to patent it and commercialize it. Mm -hmm. I wonder... Um well, there's a couple things, but let's back up just a little bit to all the people that you've trained in partnership with the Department of Labor and other groups. What are you training those people to do in this new marketplace? That, that's, that's a great question because um, our curriculum, uh, and it's in collaboration with Al a Community College of Allegheny uh, County, and it's a good example that all our programs are usually in partnership with other groups like the Pittsburgh Technology Council, like uh, the community. College of Allegheny County, um, we have two curricula. One to take, for instance, let's say you, you've been trained in electronics, mm -hmm. but you want to apply your skill set to the growing life science sector. And in the Commonwealth, the life science sector has been the only one that's grown each and every year for the last 10 years in jobs, revenues, by every metric you can. So let's say you now want to access that sector. Well, the life science sector is unique in that it's highly regulated. Uh, everybody knows that by the FDA, but it's also highly regulated by reimbursement. You can't just charge. It's regulated in the way you manufacture things. You have to be the record keeping, the cleanliness of the process. It's called GMP process. So we have a core curricula that addresses the general issues of going into the life sciences that somebody has to be aware of. And, and we're talking about taking people and training them in a three to six month period or at most nine month period. There's a second element to the curricula and that is specific to particular type of companies, particular kinds of jobs. And we, in this we have other partners such as companies, MedRAD, Renal Solutions, and there in that curriculum, we train you to work for that specific company, and there's a job waiting for you at that specific company at the end of the training. Um, actually, the Department of Labor has been so pleased with the success. Uh, the success of our programs has ranked among the top in the country uh, across the board, whether it's SBIR, whether it's uh, workforce training. And so the Department of Labor wants to roll out this curriculum nationally and there we've had to say, look, you can only do that with our core curriculum because the specific curriculum, of course, is specific to the individual companies. And A, it would not be fair to the companies. B, it would be relevant to another company. Mm -hmm. So you're training an, an infrastructure group, a group of, of technically skilled people who are ready to take on those jobs for startup companies who... Uh, may have overnight success, may find themselves suddenly needing to ramp up production. Um, and That's correct, because otherwise it can be a huge limitation. Uh, if they need people and they can't get them, they either have to find a way to get them and import them or leave the area yeah. to, to where they can get them. So you're absolutely correct. We're building a specific infrastructure, and the ironic part, uh, people see individuals in startups wearing multiple hats uh, and they think gosh maybe that would be a good place to get experience it's actually it's in the startups where they need experienced people to begin with because a small startup usually can only afford 
one of any one type of individual. So there's not somebody there to teach you or to oversee you and tell you, gosh, you're not doing this right. Um, so they need somebody who knows what they're doing because in a startup, they're counting on a person to know what they're doing and to get the job done. I can see this as a really attractive opportunity for the recent high school graduate headed off to community college who says, hey, there's something waiting for me out there and um, that may also help to keep those sorts of people in this area. We've traditionally lost a lot of our four-year college graduates, um, but I can see this maturing to a level where the four-year college grads and the post-grads are sticking around to work for now more mature companies. Actually, most of our people, or a lot of our people, have been Good. college graduates. Good. Okay. Oh, who, are they retraining? Want, that's correct. Wonderful. Who already have a base, let's say, in electrical engineering or whatever, and mm -hmm. now want to apply that skill set to the life sciences. I see. Which makes sense, because a lot of college programs produce people with great general skills, but you can take that to another level with specific skills. That's very cool. So I want to talk also about the size of the market briefly before we move on to talking about the specific field of regenerative medicine. It, when I hear you talk about sort of small, steady growth, I actually see that as a comfort um, because it, I don't see us with a big bubble about to burst in terms of market growth, but rather it's a stable area. You're helping to develop a stable workforce, et cetera. Are, how is the success of your programs been in terms of convincing firms that that's all true and that they should start up here or stay here or move here or? I would say that uh, we've helped and convinced over seven firms in the last two and a half years to relocate here and I would anticipate in the next six months there'll be another two to three moving in. It's not a rush by any means, mm -hmm. uh, but some of our most successful ones like Renal Solutions have relocated to the area. Um, the biggest challenge is to attract uh, external capital. Um, this field is voracious in its use of capital and it's a great importer of outside capital. Yet for Pittsburgh to be worth their while to stop here and not be a flyover city, they need a critical mass of companies. And, and here we, we do have a challenge because by definition, when there were only, the startup rate was two companies a year. By necessity, when I came here nearly three years ago, our focus had to be on increasing the startup rate. And we've done that and now we have, we've worked with over 170 companies. We're actively working with over 150 companies. We're incubating 16 companies, but by definition, they're all very early. And there's lots of programs between us, between Innovation Works and other groups that provide startup capital where a few hundred thousand is very relevant. Most of the national investment groups we usually come in when companies need a significant amount of money, let's say 10 million, 15 million. So we do have a gap there. And that's been the challenge of how to bring in investors or how to create a pools of capital to take these babies that have just been born with a few hundred thousand, where for follow-on financing, they certainly wouldn't kick away a few hundred thousand, but that's not sufficient to get them to the next stage. They need three, four, five million. 
and yet that amount is usually not where the national groups play. And, and that's, that gap financing is a big problem. Yet if we don't take care of it, it would be like having a baby and then telling that baby, listen, kid, go out there and come back after you finish college and I'll give you a job. Well, the chance of survival for that baby is not going to be very good. So that's, that's an area we still need to address. And there we're, we're, it, it's been a challenge to uh, make sure that people see that, A, there's the critical mass, and there's another term they use. This is I'll, I'll I'll give the credit to Jonathan Fleming of Oxford Bioscience. Says that look, he said, if we're going to invest there in that earlier stage in that gap stage, we need also adult supervision in the area. Somebody to work with these companies. So that's one of the things we're trying to provide. And in the future, I hope to focus on providing um, and making sure that. It gives people sufficient confidence to invest during that gap period in our companies, in our little babies. Uh, is adult supervision what you mentioned earlier, those serial entrepreneurs with their domain-specific knowledge who have the experience to bring an adolescent company into its young adulthood Yes, and just like with human beings, that those teenage years can be murder and very <laughs> volatile. Um, and by the way, the big advantage that groups like Boston and uh, San Francisco and San Diego and so on have is that many of these VC groups have those entrepreneurs either as partners with operating experience, et cetera, or as executives in residence or, or as advisors. So yes, they provide capital, but probably that's the most generic thing they provide where they really differentiate themselves is when they provide specific advice to specific companies in their sector and in their industry and they also provide open doors uh, to other companies for instance you need external outside manufacturing I know exactly where you can get it and it's great quality and I'll get it to you at a good price yeah, and I imagine that expert is is known obviously to people in the field, and so it provides a sort of validation of this new company's and a comfort um, level. It's yeah. it's like if you're going to trust your child at a camp or somewhere else with somebody, you want somebody who you you know who they are, what track record they have, and that they have a positive track record of molding uh, young companies into. Uh, good, responsible, successful adults. Uh, actually, part of our motto at the greenhouse was that Pittsburgh is a good place to raise a company because I think there's quite an analogy between raising a family and raising a company. Yeah, that's probably true. Now, has this process happened organically and, and sort of correctly in places like, you know, the Boston Tech Corridor and Palo Alto and the Bay Area and what have you, and, and we're observing and making it formulaic and applying you know, that system. I'm just curious if... No, no, you did, did everybody else do this so thoughtfully as the life sciences I, greenhouses? I think the closest um, is uh, the Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. But but you're absolutely correct. And the other one would be in uh, Munich, Germany, mm -hmm. for different reasons. They, they were actually banned from doing uh, biotechnology for a long period of time, and they had to figure a way out to catch up. But in the U.S., it's probably Research Triangle Park, uh, where they set land aside, they had policy. Um, they, they did it slightly differently, but 
also, and this is a very sobering thing, to become very successful, it took him about 40 years. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen in, in overnight. Mm -hmm. We felt by learning from um, the lessons that other regions have had, those that have been successful, and especially from those that have not, there have been over 40 other initiatives around the country, that we could accelerate it to where potentially we have a shot of creating a self-sustaining sector in 10 to 15 years. But it's still, still not in three to five years. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I, I, sustainable growth is what we're all after, isn't it? Um, so let's talk about regenerative medicine, speaking of growth. <laughs> um, what one of the loves of my life? Oh, good. What uh, sort of percentage of the market does do regenerative medicine spinoffs occupy here in Pittsburgh, or maybe even in the whole region? Um, so nationally and internationally, regenerative medicine is still a small part, and uh, I think uh, Dr. Alan Russell always warns people to watch out for the hype. You you hear projections mm -hmm. in in the billions or even tens of billions. I, I think uh, Pittsburgh has been a leader and in, in some uh, evaluations even number one in the world in the area of regenerative medicine and the reason is that it builds on its expertise in transplantation. Dr. Starzl's group has pioneered um, numerous transplantations have made Pittsburgh one of the leaders in tissue and organ transplantations in the world. One of the Achilles heels of transplantation, however, is organ availability. And there's not much you can do about that. As, as you may know, the number one source of uh, organs tend to be motorcycle riders because they're young and healthy. Um, and, and that's very unfortunate. It's, so it's, there has to be a tragic event almost always to get the organs. So a very logical step for the region was that if we're very strong at transplantation, why don't we create organs? And that is tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. So uh, in many ways, organizations like PTEI and the McGowan Institute of Regenerative Medicine have grown out of that need and have pioneered all the elements. And regenerative medicine is daunting to many people because it's so complex. If you're going to create an organ, you need to have biological elements, whether it's stem cells or tissue, a scaffolding so it's in, in the right shape, plus the right control elements. And those could be natural or they can be electronic. Uh, so you could have an arm that maybe parts of it may be mechanical and parts of it may have real tissue or skin or whatever. Um, it, it sounds science fiction, but we make quite a bit of progress there, but it is very complex. Um, and my approach to it when I started my career was coming in from studying how the body's created, and that's called developmental biology, and trying to identify the key control elements that tells the body how to make an arm, how to make a leg, how to make an eye, etc. So you could ping those control elements in development to maybe reactivate in adulthood when one needed to regenerate a tissue. That's your personal... That's, that's how we got started. So actually one of the first products of a company called um, Curis uh, that uh, is on the market now 
uh, what's called bone morphogenic protein. Um, and uh, it's being marketed by Stryker under OP1, osteogenic protein 1. And it tells the body to make bone where it's needed. And in the clinical trials that helped get it approved, it showed that you can take, and in this case it was a 22-year-old motorcycle rider that had numerous fractions, fractures that were not healing. He healed in, in less than a year. But even as impressively, if not more impressively, there was a woman in her 90s that had had a non-union, and non-union means a bone fracture that hasn't healed for at least nine months. Then it usually will not heal. So she had been in bed rest for over 10 years wow. because her hip wouldn't heal. When given this signal, and it's like, it's, a mor it's called morphogenic protein, it's the switch that tells the body, Repair the bone, make bone here. She got the bone repaired within six months. And the biggest issue was uh, the atrophy, the wasting away of the muscle from being. And once they worked with that to strengthen it, she was able to stand up and walk again after she hadn't been able to walk and had bedridden for more than a decade. Wow. And, and to me, that's critical. Long life is in and of itself is not a goal functionality mm -hmm. and a high quality of life for a long time is. We'll move on to what I know you're hinting at, but I, I'm curious to know how bone morphogenic protein is um, administered. Do you inject it into the break site? Is it as easy as taking a pill? How does it work? No, I wish it was as easy as <laughs> yeah. taking a pill. Um, it's a very, very powerful switch. Um, the fountain of youth, the controls, the blueprint for creating our body is in our genes. Every cell of ours has that control. So if you're giving it a signal, every cell has the ultimate capability of becoming any tissue, whether it's bone or skin or hair or, or whatever. So this is such a powerful signal that tells the body, make bone here. So wherever you would put it, mm -hmm. you will get bone. So it is placed in the area where you want the bone made, and it, it, it's, it's listed as a device in the U.S. This, is a, this was an issue in the past of how, how to even regulate these things. What are they? Are they biologicals? Are they therapeutics? Are they devices? Uh, it's given on a collagen matrix, like a scaffold of collagen, embedded, imbibed with these uh, growth morphogenic proteins that tell the body make bone here and a surgeon will put it right where you want to make bone and the bone is made there. The factor and the collagen go totally away mm -hmm. and the body takes over. It's almost like the first domino of one of those domino setups. When you push that first domino, the rest will follow and you don't need that first domino anymore to keep it going. Mechanically, I'm interested in the 90-year-old the patient. Um, did she need fixatives on the outside of her leg? To What, what sort of process was this? And then also, mechanically, um, does it have to bear a load in order to, you know, properly strengthen and things like that? All those sorts of things you think of in development, actually, I'm sure. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Uh, so first and foremost, they tried everything in her. She had had multiple grass surgeries that 
shit had pins, all kinds of mechanical assistance, and, and nothing had worked. Once the bone starts being created, uh, you're absolutely co correct. To, for it to model correctly, it, you have to put weight on it. Mm -hmm. And now it will, like an artist, it will self-correct and model and adjust to her weight, to gravity, etc. Uh, so weight bearing and use becomes critical, and that's this is where the saying of if you don't use it, you lose it yeah. is absolutely correct. So I can see there must have been a, a pretty thoughtful rehabilitation program, not just for the muscle atrophy that you described, but also for those correct. load bearing things. Wouldn't it be great though? Well, I suppose they could image her break to see the new growth to sort of get an estimation of whether it was time to get up and put weight on that. Yes, they did. Like and uh, in all the testing, actually, that new growth is stronger than her other bone because it's young, fresh bone that's just been created that hasn't yet been through the wear and tear that the rest of her body right. has been through. Wasn't that wonderful? Well, speaking of a great quality of life in our later years, um, you've been in the news lately because you are, will soon chair the, or maybe already do, the Super Centenarian Research Foundation, which will be based here in Pittsburgh. But it's it's a national collaboration, isn't it, the center? Uh, yes, yes, it is, with individuals like Dr. Steve Cole uh, at UCLA, uh, the president, Dr. Stanley Prime Primer at uh, Florida, um, and uh, Dave Goebel, who's president of Methuselah Foundation in Northern Virginia. Um, we, I had been involved with a company uh, that is now called Elixir, that's out in Cambridge, that studied people who live over 100. And there we tried to identify the genes that are responsible for longevity. And in lower organisms like uh, fruit flies or worms and so on, you can extend life tenfold, mm -hmm. which would mean maybe you can extend our life to a thousand years. So naively, uh, those were some of the things we were looking for. And what we found, however, is that many of the genes that were enriched in the elderly, or if you look at, at their medical history, it seems that they are resistant to many of the diseases that affect most of us, like Alzheimer's, cancer, um, uh, uh, atherosclerosis, and heart attacks. So it, another way of looking at it, therefore, is that they don't get many of the things that kill the rest of us. And therefore, longevity, to some extent, is a result of not having died from the diseases that kill most people. So that means that they hold some of the secrets to resistance to disease, which in many ways can create products much more readily to help people fight disorders, especially the degenerative disorders. The problem of aging is global. Even in the developing world, it's actually uh, much faster than in the developed world, and they're catching up to us. And one of the concerns with that is that it might bankrupt the system. And it's because right now, when people lose functionality, we warehouse them. or and, and that's not necessarily a great quality of life for people, plus it's very expensive. Wouldn't it be great if people can lead an independent life, play with their children, grandchildren, and be able to go to the market, go to a restaurant whenever they want, and even more importantly, go to the bathroom whenever mm -hmm. they want without any assistance. Mm -hmm. So small day-to-day -day things that affect quality of life. So we felt that that's what we wanted to focus on. And 
while the centenarians is a population that's growing by leaps and bounds, the supercentenarians, which are like the Phi Beta Kappa or the Magna Cum Laude of aging, um, are not. There's right now only about 70 or so identified. It's suspected there might be up to three, 400 in the world, but nobody knows because to, have, to be 110 or older, you have to have been born 110 years or longer ago. Mm -hmm. by definition, and the records aren't great everywhere. Mm -hmm. So identifying people and verifying is not a trivial issue. But And these people have a 50% mortality rate from 110 to 111. So they're, they're ethereal. They're not going to be here forever. So there's a sense of urgency that we got together to work with these individuals to help unlock the secrets of aging well and longevity and health and high quality of life for them and high quality of life for the rest of us. And that should also decrease, by the way, the cost of mm -hmm. aging. Mm -hmm. it's, it sounds like a combination. Um, you get dealt sort of multiple resistances to multiple diseases by luck of genetics. As my mother says, you have to pick your parents. Yes. Um, but there must be some lifestyle choices that play into this or enhance this as usual, it's a combination of both environment and genetic factors. So I we can preach absolutely. all we want about, you know, don't smoke, drink in moderation, etc. Um, but it often comes down to luck. But I guess the notion is that we can manipulate luck. We can eventually. manipulate <laughs> luck, and I'll put it this way. It, is, is it genetic, is biology versus environment? Is it 80% environment, 20%? genetics? Is it 50-50? Uh, personally, I would prefer for it to be 20% genetics and 80% environment because we have much more control over our environment. Mm -hmm. Even though your mom said you should pick your parents, it's a bit harder to do. Uh, more and more evidence, however, it's accumulating that it may very well be the reverse, that it's probably about 80% genetics and 20% environment. Wow. So genetics may play, it's, it's not something that makes me happy to say, uh, but, but it also gives us an opportunity that we can take the lessons and maybe we can use the lessons from genetics uh, for those of us who have not been fortunate enough to, to pick uh, their parents. Uh, but a good example, for instance, is uh, a runner, Fix, uh, that was in Boston. He was a marathon runner, a vegetarian. Now... He was in great shape, but he died uh, by age 39, 40, because he had familiar hyperlipidemia. Now, he lived much longer than most people in his family who died in their early 30s. He died almost at 40. But it shows you that uh, when the genetics are working against you, it's, it's a pretty tough swim upstream. Mm -hmm. I wonder, and this is probably not the form for this, are, are people studying the risk-seeking behaviors of these successfully very aged people also? I mean, you can have all the genetics and lifestyle choices. Well, risk-taking behavior is a lifestyle choice. But um, you, know, you can have all the great genetics in the world, but if you um, are a you know, downhill skier, you could die at 45 because you ran into a tree. I, I just wonder if there's some behavioral elements that are in common among people who are aging very yeah, successfully. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know how much time we have, but mm -hmm. 
you're absolutely correct. Or if you step, I mean, an obvious one is if, if you like to play in an active highway and step in front of a truck, <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. that, that, that does, does away with you. So there's degrees of, uh, degrees of risk-taking behavior. So we have found that some of the centenarians, the people who live over 100, uh, some of them smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, and yet they did not get lung cancer. They did not get, mm-hmm. uh, they were resistant. They could repair the damage. Mm-hmm. It's not that they didn't have damage, but they could repair it very efficiently. It also seems that there's regulation uh, in something called demethylation, methylation of DNA. That doesn't matter. It's like turning on and off particular parts of DNA that a group out of McGill and others have shown that even risk-taking behavior or nurturing behavior gets passed on. As an example, if you have a mom rodent that licks her uh, baby, uh, they will have a different pattern in their brain and they will the females will lick their babies. Mm-hmm. If you put it with a mom rat that doesn't lick its babies, they'll have a different pattern in the brain, and her daughters will not lick their babies. Mm-hmm. So it's stuff like that is, is passed on. I mean, I, it, this so, probably is not the form, but it, it's become fascinating to the degree that behavior, environment, and genetics right. interact, and it's a fluid interface. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I wish we did have the time, <laughs> actually. It's really incredible to think that a pattern of behavior can alter the genetics that further alter the patterns of behavior. And you know with identical twins, and this is almost eerie, um, that were separated, let's say, at birth and raised in different countries, on different continents. So that that's a nicer control. They tracked them down and... They found out, for instance, if uh, they were similar in the type of music, if one liked uh, uh, metal, hard rock, the other one did. If they smoked, both smoked, and they smoked the same time, maybe not the same brand, but the same time. So if one liked menthol, the other one liked menthol, and so on. To to very minute choices they made in their lifestyle. Uh, even though they were raised in totally different societies on different parts of the ocean. Wow. Amazing. So tell me really quickly, um, what's your first goal for this new center? What do you want to attack our, first? So our first goal is to, we've, we've been fortunate enough to receive donations of close to a couple of hundred thousand, is to raise another uh, two to three million and to as rapidly as possible identify and document as many of the supercentenarians as possible. And for those that want to participate, to have them donate samples of blood or saliva or cells from the cheek just with a Q-tip um, that will permit them be, and as I said, it's a race. Every year, 50% die. And for whatever reason, they seem to be reaching a ceiling. So unlike the centenarian population, that's the fastest growing population, the supercentenarian is staying steady or has actually even decreased a little bit. So, to get, so we want to raise two to three million as rapidly as possible to create a database and a repository of tissues that future researchers can work. A longer term goal is we'll 
require more than $100 million or so for us to fund research to use that material to unlock some of the secrets to uh, the fountain of youth that exists within each of our cells. Yeah, we'll look forward to that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really Thank you. It. Okay. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Leah. For more information about Dr. Platica and his new research foundation, see the links on our website at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And don't forget to join us for our next podcast on the latest from the field of regenerative medicine, coming to you two weeks from now. If you have ideas for future podcasts, or just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We'd like to thank all those who have provided input and remind you that we can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. We do hope you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I hope you'll join us again in a few weeks.